A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And I welcome you to the show. Whether you are a seasoned wrong thinker or a first-timer, just kind of dipping your toe in the water to see if wrong think is right for you. I'm glad you joined me today. I'll do my best to make it worth your while. Do want to mention that our show is brought to you by Rio Del Sion Home Lots, also Monticello College, and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Why do I take the time to thank these sponsors? In a nutshell, it's because their sponsorship of this program and the funding that they provide by doing so allows me to, to focus like a laser on finding and conveying the best information, the best content that I can find to you. And what's the purpose behind that? I'm glad you asked. Pull up a chair. It's to see the world more clearly, to better understand the things that are going on around us, stripped of the partisan dressing and most of the labels, and then to understand where our influence can be put to its best and highest use. I know it's kind of a lofty thing, but the bottom line is this. You and I have much more power to shape the world around us than we are led to believe. Because we're led to believe that everything depends on what's happening in Washington, D.C. Just look at the the news sources, the mass media, and everything that they focus on. The headlines will tell you what they consider the most important thing and what they want you and me to consider the most important things in the world. But truth be told, when we take a real close look at them, often we find that uh, these are things that have very little to do with us. Now, they may be interesting. We may have strong opinions on you know various issues. But truth be told, there's an awful lot going on in Washington, D.C. that has absolutely nothing to do with us other than the fact that uh, you know the government would like to reach over and give us a squeeze every so often to get a little more money out of us and a little more control over us. So we talk about principles of freedom, personal conscience. We talk about private property. And also the uh, free market and uh, free enterprise. Because these are things that are consistent with people who are living their lives and not just being directed like a bunch of little automatons. So with that in mind, join me for this journey. We've got a couple of great things to talk about today. Um, I want to share with you an article from Alan Stevo. It's titled The Cleansing of the American People. And I look, when I started reading this, I was like, ooh, he mentions the word slavery. And you have to understand, I have a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction just because right now, well, actually, this has been going on for a long time, but uh, but now there's there's like a fever pitch building. We must remove any vestiges, any reminders of anything that uh, that involved slavery. So you saw last summer the tearing down of statues of people. Why? Well, because they once had slaves or they were affiliated with the slave trade. Or in, in Abraham Lincoln's case, I think it was in Portland, they pulled down his statue. He freed the slaves. Huh? <laughs> Why are we tearing down his statue again? Anyhow, we are headed toward a type of enslavement, political enslavement. Even as our culture warriors are feverishly trying to cleanse American society of any reminders of shadow slavery. So Alan Stevo's article 
is very thought-provoking when you consider what we are currently experiencing, what we are likely to experience in the days ahead, days ahead rather, and what we can do about it as individuals who don't really want to live or wander as slaves. This is how he starts off. He says, 40 years he walked them through the desert, this Moses. 40 years, two generations, until a nation of slaves who knew how to abide and perhaps even prosper under Egyptian slavery had become a people hardened by the trials of the wilderness and eager for prospering in a land of their own and to live lives of faith. Lives of faith, not lives of fear. Forty years he walked them through the desert, feeding them manna as they moaned about how wonderful the agriculture of Egypt was, how pleasant the servitude was, how easy it would be to just turn back. Forty years until the moaning generations were replaced by those who couldn't stand the thought of slavery. And then there's some more historical perspective he provides here. I thought this was fascinating. Forty-one years they lived under the communist yoke in Czechoslovakia. Forty-one years, two generations, until the people had become a people able to cast off that government and live lives without that government's every totalitarian input in every aspect of their lives. Forty-one years in East Germany. Forty years in Hungary. Forty-two years in Poland. Forty-one years in Romania. Forty-four years in Bulgaria. Forty-seven years in Yugoslavia. Now, some places were worse and longer. Seventy-four years in the USSR. And other places continue that trial. 62 years in Cuba, 1959 to present. 72 years in China. 73 years in North Korea. His point is there's no intrinsic limit to how long it goes. The limit is on how long it is allowed to go. And he's speaking of political slavery. When a backstop exists, it will come to an end. A backstop of people who refuse to act like a slave any longer, who demand better. Forty years they walked through the desert until a nation of slaves turned into a nation of people who wanted more and would strive for that, doing whatever it took to get it. So here's the question he asks. How long will the American people walk through the desert? How long will you walk through the desert? Because your decision to live a free life is not dependent on anyone else's decision. And so he asks, are you ready for a better life? Or are you eager to continue the childish antics, the self-infantilizing ways of the slave? Yes, he says, in slavery you labor under another man's command, but you never need worry from whence your daily bread comes. You need never concern yourself with that worry or with that risk. You need only grumble from time to time when the bread ration gets too small. The grumble may cause you to risk being whipped. Those are the great risks in life, that you go beg for more crumbs from the table and might take a whipping. Anyone who's walked a day in the shoes of a free man knows that the risks of life are much greater than taking a whipping from master. In slavery, you long not for greatness. And that's part of the deal. Master protects you from the pitfalls of wanting greatness. He reminds you, yes, once in a while, an entrepreneur succeeds, but oh, how they fail, and in such plentiful numbers, 95% of all small businesses go under within seven years, Master reminds you. Is that the kind of failure you want to return to, or do you want to? Do you want the riskless existence of working in community and having your daily bread guaranteed? Master reminds you how good it is to fear risk, how liberating it is not to trouble the mind with the possibilities of risk and reward. 
Now, he says, you may also have slave hobbies, those that feel good and do not edify. The more vile and debasing, the more titillating and corrupting, the more demoralizing and destructive to you, the better it is for master. Be ye children all your days. Laugh and play like children, only with adult bodies, bodies that can do adult things. Enjoy your lives. You only live once. Life is short. Try anything once. Be ye children. And the better it is for master, because children cannot rise up. The demoralized cannot rise up. They have no strength, no fortitude. Demoralization is the process of dispiriting a people by removing morals, customs, ways, traditions. And Alan Stevo says, oh, how good it is for master. You might also trade in slave money, that controlled and debased fiat currency devised to pay all the bills in the most conniving of ways that lends itself not only to the debasing of the currency, but the debasing of all aspects of life. Use the slave money, child. It comes with no risk to you. At least two generations have known nothing but slave money. Just sit back and act like a child for as much of life as you can. Is what Master wants you to accept. And many people confuse that with freedom. But at some point, it stops being possible to blame Master for your decisions. Maybe at 10 years old, maybe at 15 years old, maybe at 20 years old, you can't blame Master or anyone else by that point. Your decisions are on you. By that point, confusion, influence, deceit, oppression, control, words like these carry little weight when spoken by a person with agency, trying to convince others that he's not to blame for his own choices. Well, nature is nature abhors a vacuum. And Alan Stevo says it's not your oppressor's fault that you are so oppressible. It's not the oppressor's fault that you have so little fortitude to hold the line, to storm the breach, to impose your will, to defend your values. If you do not fill that space as a righteous and steel-spined leader, it will be filled by those who mean to do you harm. Grave harm will befall that person. Children know no better than to be children. And so he asks, what is your excuse? And Alan Stevo says, America is headed towards slavery and can barely find a single righteous man who will rise to lead otherwise. I know, that's kind of like a bucket of cold water in the face. It got me thinking as well. I'll finish this up just the other side of the break. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm starting with something kind of bold and spicy today. And I understand for some people this is going to be uncomfortable because this is pushing into some psychic territory where we have more or less been programmed, you know, to feel revulsion. And, and just when someone mentions the word slavery, you know, there's there's a tendency, well, be careful now, don't be using that word. We, we're, we're trying to remove anything that reminds us that slavery ever existed as an institution. And yet Alan Stevo, in this article that was published earlier today on lewrockwell.com, makes a pretty convincing case that Chattel slavery has given way to a form of political slavery. And we are heading towards a deeper form of slavery, as I outlined in the last uh, last segment. 
and he asks, what's your excuse? America's headed toward slavery and can barely find a single righteous man who will rise to lead otherwise. He says, the allure of carefree daily bread, the allure of childlike nights and weekends of childlike carefree splendor, and in exchange for mere obedience, that's too great an allure for the man who has been demoralized. And that's why Master likes it when you have no morality, no tradition, no customs. That's why Master likes it when you won't commit. That's why Master likes it when you have no responsibility, when you have no spouse, when you have no children, when you have endless joy and little more. Huh, Master wants you to have endless joy. What's so bad about that? If that sounds pretty good to you, he says, perhaps you're part of the problem. But the choice is yours. All you have to do is take a knee. You might love the next 40 years or 400 years or 4,000 years. Master will welcome you with open arms. But he says, if you simply commit to never taking that knee, if you simply commit to never being a man's slave, then so much more is possible. Stop that obedience now, at least to the people who want to enslave you, even if they're not clapping you in physical chains. Maybe it's time to recognize that uh, there are other chains that are just as binding and just as limiting in terms of what you can do with your life. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You can check them out at thebrianhydeshow.com. Yes, Alan Stevo has, has challenged my thinking a couple of times before. This was a pretty good one. And it leads me to think, okay, so what can you do? What is realistically <clears throat> within your grasp? How can you free yourself from the, uh, the, you know, the modern-day slave catchers, the ones who keep you in thrall to the system? Well, one of the simple things is to unplug. found a great article this morning by David Perez. Liberation by unplugging. Actually, he asks it as a question. Liberation by unplugging? Okay. And he points out two dangerous things are happening simultaneously. First, the official COVID narratives are mutating in ways that threaten to make it a forever phenomenon, unsurprisingly to anyone who's been paying attention. Second, the titans of high tech in league with the deep state and its political lapdogs are hell-bent on eliminating voices of dissent on various internet platforms. Now, David Perez says, it, is, it seems to me that we have to fight extreme with extreme. But our extreme might be simple, hard, yes, but a very direct action. Might we, for instance, begin our resistance by ditching our smartphones? in the ones and twos, or in rallies where we dump them in mass. Might this make the agenda of the corporate and political elite harder to implement, particularly all the surveillance apps supposedly for our health? While we're at it, he says, can, can we consider that the digital world in general has now reached the point, or is perhaps long past the point, where it serves the oppressors far more than it serves us? Has our habit of evaluating the benefits of technology in strictly personal terms been trumped by its use by empire for economic, political, social, and militarized rule. Can we overcome the feeling that high-tech is a runaway juggernaut we're helpless to control? He says, reimagine an old normal, independent of, of an old normal, independent of behemoths like Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Twitter, free from the tyranny of algorithms, our self-worth measured in digital likes and shares, and then he asks, when does acceptance become surrender? 
Now, David Perez says, I realize, of course, that because of COVID, millions of people are now more dependent on the Internet and apps like Zoom for their bread and butter. And only for the grace does my income situation enable me to opt out. Nevertheless, he says, it's a real question. Is our being forced to spend more time online potentially another health hazard? To quote that 1985 Aretha Franklin song, Who's Zooming Who? It could very well be that the Luddite might want to be inside me has fed over the years by my job to opposite bookshop in Taos, New Mexico, formerly known as Moby Dickens. The store has been operating in the same location for over 30 years as a time machine to the past. Some might say an ancient past. He says our point-of-sale system still runs on MS-DOS, the precursor to Windows built in 1977, and too old to be linked to the Internet. The computer monitor is a CRT with green lettering and the keyboard functions with F keys. He says we also use an Okidata dot matrix printer. The only thing missing is Pong. Alas, we do have a laptop with a Wi-Fi connection which allows us to order inventory from distributors like Ingram, as well as checking emails and doing research on bookstore-related news. But, by and large, Opsit operates very old school. We even use index cards and scrap paper to take special orders and leave each other notes. Now, he says, when customers, a steady mix of locals and tourists, discover how low-tech we are, they invariably respond with something like, oh my goodness, that's so awesome. Many of them, youth in particular, wonder how such an old operating system could have lasted this long. He says, we wonder the same thing. Personally, the opposite experience has caused him to examine what it is he truly needs. As science author Nicholas Carr wrote in The Glass Cage, Automation and Us, back in 1994, quote, We assume that anyone who rejects a new tool in favor of an older one is guilty of nostalgia, of making choices sentimentally rather than rationally. But the real sentimental fallacy is the assumption that the new thing is always better. What makes one tool superior to another has nothing to do with how new it is. What matters is how it enlarges or diminishes us, how it shapes our experiences with nature and culture and one another. End quote. And then David Perez points out that writer and reporter David Sachs makes a very similar point in The Revenge of the Analog a detailed book that shows how youth are at the forefront of getting unplugged from a relentlessly digitized world. Sachs writes, quote, There's an argument that the world has fundamentally changed, and we should just get used to it. That the amount of time spent on computers, smartphones, and so forth is because the young love it. It's their way of communication. To deny that is to deny reality. Moreover, the technology is good, it's liberating, and has opened vast new frontiers. End quote. Now, David Perez says the book shows how it's the exact opposite. It is the younger generation that's become less enamored with digital technology and warier of its effects. Sachs explains, quote, These were the teenagers and 20-somethings out buying turntables, film cameras, and novels in paperback. They were the students who told me how they would rather be constrained by the borders of a page than the limits of word processors, end quote. So good to know, right? And David Perez says, hey, I totally get the challenges. The Internet is a vast resource with enormous benefits. This very article for this very website demonstrates its use and value. And he says, and I've been clicking and scrolling for decades. But he says, still, I can't shake the feeling that perhaps we've reached a crossroad, maybe gone past it, that digital addiction has become the real lockdown, hiding in plain sight, weaponized on behalf of the ruling class, And, as he stated in the beginning, he says their agenda relies heavily on pumping up the drug. 
So, might our ultimate liberation depend on getting unplugged or at least moving in that direction? Extreme measures that lead us back to community and to love. It's an interesting thought. And, you know, I, I have to admit, my knee-jerk reaction when I first see it is I kind of quail at the thought because it's like, hey, I need all that online digital stuff to do what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm still trying to resolve that conundrum. But the idea of unplugging on occasion, taking a little media fast, still an excellent idea, and it will help you keep your sanity. You should try it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Monticello College. I hope you will go to my show notes page. You will find under the show notes for February 24th, there is a nice little section at the end of the show notes for my sponsors, giving them recognition. More importantly, giving you contact information and a way to reach out to them. Click on the Monticello College link, take a look, and see what an education for our time might look like. Powerful, powerful stuff there. Now, if you have a slightly warped sense of humor, if you can handle some stinging parody, Mike Judge's 2006 film, Idiocracy, is remarkable. I remember hearing a few friends talk about this years ago, but I didn't get around to watching it until I'm guessing maybe five years ago. So it, it had been out. It's been out for 15 years, but uh, it was 10 years after the fact before I finally sat down and watched it. And and I'm going to tell you, this is Mike Judge is the creator of Beavis and Butthead. He's the creator of King of the Hill. Um, he is uh, he's a guy for whom uh, satire and body parody is uh, second nature. He's very, very good at what he does. But I have, uh, I have no doubt that he had tapped into something in his social commentary in the film Idiocracy that, uh, that is, is ringing more true all the time. I know when I watched it five years ago, that was one of the first things I thought is, holy cow, this is, this is describing how we are today. And there's an article I want to share with you. I'm going to tell you right now, there's, there's a little bit of, um, I'm not going to say uh, adult language, but uh, describing the movie, there's, there's a little bit of crass humor here. So, you know, consider yourself warned. If you have small kids in the car, you might want to wait until they're you know, dropped off at school or whatever uh, before you continue listening. This is from Revolver News. I don't know who the author is. I don't see a byline here for, for whoever wrote it. But uh, the title is Beyond Parody. The world of Mike Judge's idiocracy is better than Joe Biden's America. And it says, when idiocracy came out in 2006, it bombed. Frightened of of angering advertisers who were ridiculed in the film, Fox suppressed the movie's release and it grossed less than a million dollars. But Mike Judge's satire on civilizational and... And genetic decay has become more popular every year, mainly because to many its predictions are coming true right in front of us. In Idiocracy, Army Corporal Joe Bowers, the most average man in the U.S. Armed Forces, is placed in suspended animation for 500 years. When Bowers awakes, he finds Earth on the brink of collapse. 
For 500 years, stupid people have relentlessly outproduced or outreproduced intelligent people, creating a society where the average IQ has plummeted. Now, idiocracy is particularly popular with liberals because they liked to imagine that President Trump's election and red state culture more generally represented the real-life rise of idiocracy. In fact, even Mike Judge agreed with them saying, well, I called the people who made idiocracy to see how they so accurately predicted the future. I'm no judge, or I'm no prophet, judge told me. I was off by 490 years. He, too, is shocked at how eerily similar the world has become to the one his movie depicted. He and idiocracy co-writer Ethan Cohen have been working on, a f- on fake campaign ads for uh, President Camacho, we'll tell you more about him in a moment, to be used as anti-Trump web videos, but they're having a hard time. Our jokes would be like, I'm going to build a wall around the earth. They were only incrementally stupider. Writing idiocracy, says Cohen, was just following your id. Now, unfortunately, our id has become our candidate for president. That's an article from Time magazine. Now, in Revolver, they say idiocracy is hilarious, but Judge and Cohen are off the mark. America isn't becoming idiocracy. It's becoming something worse. Fifteen years after the film's release, the future portrayed in Idiocracy is indisputably superior to the present liberals are creating right now in America. Insane? Not remotely. And we're here to tell you how. First one, this is the first thing that came to mind about uh, when I think of Idiocracy and I think, oh boy, they've pegged us. Idiocracy has better art. In the Idiocracy verse, the most popular America in movie is a movie called Ass. And the film is exactly what it sounds like. It's a bare butt filmed against, you know, a, a backdrop with occasional farting. And the audience just sits there and laughs themselves silly. Stupid? Certainly. But it isn't actively in-your-face hideous, like the art that progressive America routinely foists onto the public. You realize, of course, for last year, NPR declared Cardi B's pornographic song, WAP, to be the song of the year. The taxpayer news backed or taxpayer backed news outlet wrote a pair of women honoring their own lady parts and the pleasures they dish out and expect returned in spades drew the ire of the insecure. Yeah, Revolver would, without any irony at all, much rather watch the movie Ass than listen to Cardi B's song. Number two, Idiocracy has a better health care system. Early in the film, Joe visits a hospital where he discovers to his dismay that America's health care system has degenerated to just passing people through a machine, the Health Master Inferno, that informs them, possibly at random, whether their ailment is a tumor, hepatitis, tapeworm, Ebola, or just gas. Sure, that's pretty bad, but then again, in America, right now, Medical errors killed a quarter million people a year before, a year even before Governor Cuomo's catastrophic nursing home cover-up. And in idiocracy, medical care is being provided fairly to people of all races. There isn't even a hint of doling out health care based on skin color, which has now become the overt preference of American elites. And by the way, there are links in this article to what they're talking about. These are not just, you know, baseless allegations. They'll, they'll link to the stories. Number three, idiocracy is a genuine meritocracy. America of 2505 is run by President Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho, five-time wrestling champ and pornography superstar. President Camacho is dumb, but he's also clearly one of the smartest people in 2505. He's literate and smart enough to know that the best way to salvage his decaying country is to find the most capable person and give him immense authority. Now, in contrast... 
almost almost nobody is under the illusion that Joe Biden is president because he's the best America has to offer. In fact, Biden may very well be president precisely because he's so easily swayed and controlled by others. Kamala Harris is already handling his phone calls. Number four, idiocracy believes in IQ. No, really. The world of idiocracy may be incredibly stupid, but they have one crucial advantage over the modern liberal dystopia. They don't deny that intelligence exists. When Joe is sent to prison in the film, he's immediately administered a rudimentary IQ test which reveals he has an IQ of 100 and is therefore the smartest person alive. When this is discovered, Joe is immediately named Secretary of the Interior and given near total authority to try and fix society's problems. Even in its decayed state, the world of idiocracy can recognize, empower, and reward genuine talent. In America, no such luck. Instead of empowering high IQ individuals, America denies that IQ is even real. Officials in Virginia have abandoned the strictly test-based admissions to the Thomas Jefferson High School of Science and Technology, America's best public high school, in favor of a holistic admissions process, meant, of course, to increase diversity. San Francisco officials are doing the same to the city's prestigious Lowell High School, ditching merit-based admissions for the same lottery-based admissions process used for other horribly performing high schools. Dozens of schools are abandoning the ACT and SAT, which for decades have enabled brilliant students from obscure parts of America to prove themselves and to rise to greatness. Without standardized tests, America will return to the system that prevailed before. Advantage will be given not to the most able, but to the most politically powerful. Prior to the arrival of Secretary Not Sure... (laughs) You'll have to watch the film to get that. Uh, President Camacho's government is badly run, to say the least. But at least they point out idiocracy's government actually cares about its citizens. It's entirely focused on attempting to fix real, universal problems, dust storms, crop failures, a weak economy, acne, and car sickness. President Camacho's government never treats police officers as presumptively racist. There's never the slightest sign that it promotes critical race theory or denounces half the country as innately racist possessors of white privilege. In his State of the Union, Camacho is honest, opening his speech by admitting, I know crap's bad right now, but he never gaslights his citizens that violent riots are mostly peaceful protests. Faced with a food shortage, Camacho's goal is to get the crops growing again. He never tries to convince the public that instead they should be eating bugs. Yes, that is something that our own leaders are suggesting. Number six, idiocracy has a better attitude toward academia. This is probably one of the best parts of the movie. In idiocracy, you can purchase your law degree in bulk at Costco. This indicates that in the America of 2505, academic credentials are assigned the value they deserve. In this case, none whatsoever. There's more to this. I'm going to let you discover that on your own. Some of this, again, is, you know, I, I don't uh, put this out there because uh, it's it's not there because it has some uh, offensive language or some uh, sensitive subjects. But, yeah, it's it's very irreverent. It's satire. So, you know, don't be too surprised. But they, they do make a pretty good case. America, as it is right now, may actually be worse off than the dumbed-down version portrayed in Idiocracy. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, just a note about the article I was sharing in the last segment about uh, Beyond Parody, the world of idiocracy, is better than Joe Biden's America. This is from Revolver.News. The very last thing that they point out, and there's 12 different points that they use to make their case that um, Mike Judge's idiocracy was actually a, a better, more accepting, more tolerant place than our own America is, is becoming today. Their government was more transparent. The people of idiocracy are more tolerant. Uh, they still had prisons. They still had accountability for their leaders. But here's one. For all its faults, the world of idiocracy is one in, in which the movie Idiocracy could be made instead of being censored for its politically incorrect acknowledgement of human differences. Despite his ample cynicism, Mike Judge was simply too American to ever imagine the censorship-based dystopia that was just 15 years away. It's a very worthwhile article. I hope you'll take the time to at least take a look at it. If you haven't seen the movie and uh, you're not too uh, off-put by, uh, you know, by kind of crass humor, there it, it really is some of the best satire that I've seen in the sense that there are certain truths and there are attitudes that it pokes fun at that you'll recognize and go, oh my gosh, we do that, don't we? That, that's kind of where we're headed, which is the whole point of satire, to be able to speak truths with humor that otherwise might be painful to speak. Highly recommend it. Just make sure it's after the kids head for bed. All right. You know, most of us have lived under a left-right political paradigm for the better part of our lives. I still see it. I still struggle with it, too. I don't like labels. When people start talking in terms of left and right, and we've got to politically do this, and the Democrats and Republicans and progressives and conservatives, I, I tend to glaze over just a little bit because labels can be so meaningless. It's, it's, like, it's like the people who um, you know, see racism in everything. Everything is racist. Everything is sexist. Everything is misogynist. Everything is oppressive. And, and it just it, it becomes uh, the little boy who cried wolf. Nobody cares. There's no credibility. There, there's, it, it dumbs everything down to the point of absolute meaninglessness. But when it comes to breaking free of that left-right political paradigm, all you have to do is start stripping away the labels. And when you do... Something you're going to see is that most every conflict that we see playing out before us has its roots in individualism versus collectivism. It's a great article that was published yesterday on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org. Is individualism versus collectivism the new left versus right? This is by Nicholas Baum. And instead of mapping ideologies based on their social beliefs, he says we should map ideologies based on how much they seek to impose their social beliefs on others. He says when we normally think of the political spectrum, we picture a linear scale extending in opposite directions. The left side we think of as liberal or progressive, the right side we consider conservative. We like to use this one-dimensional map as a way of comparing and contrasting different ideologies and beliefs, simplifying the complexities of politics into a neat and straightforward tool. Now, besides all of the obvious problems when simplifying ideologies into a single scale, he says there's another important complication that is less obvious. The left-right spectrum views conservatism and progressivism as opposites, 
but in reality, the two sides share an important commonality. Adherents on both sides of the ideological spectrum often seek to impose their personal views on the rest of society. Amen, bro. And he says, for that reason, I propose a different approach. Instead of mapping ideologies based on their social beliefs, we should map ideologies based on how much they seek to impose their social beliefs on others. In other words, ideas should be judged based on how much choice they leave to the citizen and how much they allow individuals to live by their lifestyle and morals. One side of this proposed spectrum allows individuals to live by their accords and ideals, whereas the other seeks to enforce their own judgments on the lives of others. So individualism is the first side of this spectrum. As Ayn Rand writes, individualism regards man as an independent, sovereign entity who possesses an inalienable right to his own life, a right derived from his nature as a rational being. End quote. Individualism believes that every person, because they are rational and equal, are independent beings entitled to the largest possible domain of freedom. This freedom of choice and action only stops when it directly conflicts with the ability of others to do the same, mainly if it intrudes upon their life, liberty, or property. To an individualist, the maximum role of the government is to protect our lives, liberty, and property. If the government were to perform an additional task, whether it be for progressive or conservative ends, it would be, in the words of Frederick Bastiat, legalized plunder. Because the government is funded by taxation, and taxation is the forced confiscation of some of our property, the individualist believes that the government should, at most, perform tasks that defend and enable individual freedom. Now, he says, ultimately, individualism is the idea that we shouldn't impose a way of life or certain ideas on the rest of society. It believes that humans are a diverse, intricate species that should have the freedom to make their own choices. We should be free to choose and act as our hearts desire so long as such choices don't directly conflict with others' rights to do the same. Now, the other side of this spectrum is collectivism and it encompasses most of the beliefs we are commonly exposed to. Whether it be conservatism, progressivism, or socialism, collectivism involves the imposition of a certain belief or point of view on the rest of society. Whereas the key tenet of individualism is the maximization of freedom in order to live by one's own morals, a key tenet of collectivist ideologies is the willingness to use coercive means to promote a desired social or economic agenda. This may come in two forms— The government might subsidize activities they endorse, or they might restrict people's freedom through regulations for activities they disapprove of. Unfortunately, this tendency is ubiquitous in our current political landscape, existing on both sides of the left-right spectrum. The right side of the modern political spectrum, although it does tend to value individualist ideas such as constitutionalism and economic freedom, is nevertheless drawn to certain collectivist tendencies. Conservatives supported tariffs, expanded military power, supported the criminalization of same-sex marriage, and embraced policies such as the war on drugs. With that said, the left side of the spectrum is arguably worse. Arguing for universal health care, free college, an expanded welfare state, gun control measures, and as a result, increased taxation. The point is, both conservative and progressive causes often involve the imposition of an idea over the entire populace, either by forcing the public to pay for a policy or by restricting their freedom of choice. Universal health care, free college, the expansion of military power, and so forth are all collectivist, 
because they seek to promote the common good by forcing citizens to pay for it. This means that less of their money goes to purchasing the things that they actually want and instead goes to funding things that they don't want or don't benefit from. Now, one may be tempted to assume that individualism is a form of egoism or selfishness, but in his classic work, The Road to Serfdom, Friedrich Hayek points out this is hardly the case. He says, quote, individualism merely starts from the indisputable fact that the limits of our powers of imagination make it impossible to include in our scale of values more than a sector of the needs of the whole society. End quote. So we as individuals want to further our own interests. We should be granted as much freedom as possible to pursue this end. Our freedoms can't be curtailed for some variant of the common good because that necessarily infers that someone decides what the common good is and allows their decisions to triumph over the rights of individuals, the protection of which is the very purpose of government. George Orwell, the author of 1984, and one of the great prophets of the 20th century, once observed that the left versus right dichotomy no longer served in the modern world. Orwell, in a 1948 letter to Malcolm Muggeridge, wrote, The real division is not between conservatives and revolutionaries, but between authoritarians and libertarians. Well, Orwell was right, says Nicholas Baum, and going forward, we should acknowledge the collectivist tendencies in our politics. This simple acknowledgement is the first step toward a universal human goal, which is to live by the ideals we find reasonable, to set our own standards, abide by our own principles, and not be restricted or dispossessed by those who believe they know what's best for us. I can't tell you how cool it is to find this uh, this viewpoint. And by the way, Nicholas Baum is a high school sophomore interested in microeconomics, liberalism, and political theory. This young man's got a good head on his shoulders. And I agree with him entirely in his assessment that it's it's not a matter of left versus right. It's a matter of the collective versus the individual. And that means, yes, even on the political right, a lot of my friends have got to learn how to exile that little tyrant living within them that wants to impose what's right for people through the force of government. Thanks again for joining us. Check out the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.